0: Thanks, Jed. Yeah, uh, drone fights, Nerf battles. Uh, I'm I'm a big believer in uh, you know we have a huge reason to celebrate as the church, and so uh, we should have fun. <laughs> church is fun. We're we're redeemed people, and so yeah, we. Uh, I if if you ever want embarrassing stories about Jed when his internship time, I'm I'm game. Like. <laughs> Well, hey guys, by the way, that song at the end, um, uh, Raise a Hallelujah, is one of my very favorites. Um, That line, uh, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Like, I can't think of a better uh, statement from the church in this season right now that we're going to sing in the middle of the storm. It doesn't matter as the storm swirls outside, as the storm swirls in, in our world, we're the church, we're God's people. We have a reason to celebrate no matter what, so we're gonna sing in the middle of the storm. We're gonna raise our voices higher, and I just I think that's, that's just awesome, so I'm still kinda buzzing from worship. But hey guys, good morning. Uh, I am truly excited to be here today. Uh, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but Whiting, uh, you guys have a reputation in church world as being a church that absolutely loves Jesus. Uh, you guys have a reputation of being a church that is all about the mission of God, all about Jesus's mission of, of reaching lost people, and of making disciples. We hear about it all the way out in Council Bluffs. Um, So I am actually uh, excited and I feel honored to be here today uh, because you guys are a sweet church, (laughs) all right? Uh, So first things first, I'm not sure that you noticed, uh, but uh, obviously I'm not Mike. Um, I know it's hard to tell, I know we look a lot alike. Um, You know, he's tall and in shape and clean cut and so am I. Round is a shape, I'm <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, I have a beard, so that's the easiest way you can tell us apart. Um, but all kidding aside, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm Josh, um, and uh, currently I serve alongside my wife, Angela, um, over at First Christian Church in Council Bluffs. And I'm originally from the Chicago area, so, you know, don't hold that against me. Uh, sometimes the accent might start to come out if you get me talking about foods, so if you get me talking about like Giordano's deep dish pizza, and we're talking like pizza like that thick. Like then you'll start to hear the Chicago come out or a, or a Patillo's Italian beef sandwich, which by the way is the single greatest sandwich in the world, okay? Just got to say it. Dub Bears, double Bulls, that'll, that'll come out every so often. But uh, in all honesty, I may have grown up in the city, but uh, honestly, I wizened up and married the brilliant, Daughter of a farm girl from northern Iowa. <coughs> um, a wisest, smartest thing I ever did. Um, so I may be from the city, but I got to the country as soon as I could. Um, we have two amazing kids. Uh, Toby uh, just turned 13. Uh, so we have a teenager, so pray for us. Um, and uh, our daughter, Abby, is nine. Um, and is just an amazing ball of energy. Uh, she's our social butterfly. But uh, so I have two kids, which means I have heard the three most annoying words in every parent's life, and that is, that's not fair. You know, he's got more ice cream than me. That's not fair, Daddy. She's been on the Nintendo Switch too long. That's not fair. Like you hear that all the time. That's not fair. Because as kids, we have this like innate. Like sense that like no 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 we need we need fairness. Like even Toby he had to stay home from school to get shots the other day. And Abby is like, that's not fair. How come he gets to stay home? It's like, do you want shots? Do you want to go get shots? (laughs) It's like that's not fair. But we never really grow out of that, do we? We as we become adults, we expect to get what's due to us. We expect to get what we earn, and we don't expect to get what we don't earn. It's not fair. And so eventually, as parents, we we will always get to that point where you have to say those other, that, that, that one retort that we've all said in our life, and that's, life isn't fair, right? It's like, yeah, it's not fair. And? Life isn't fair. And thank goodness, life isn't fair. Because grace, by definition, isn't fair. Forgiveness is not fair. Love is not fair. I can imagine Jesus with his disciples. He just taught about loving your enemies and having grace with the unbeliever. And the disciples are like, wait, but that's not fair. And he goes, oh, you want to talk fair now? How about we talk about all the sins that I'm about to forgive? Life isn't fair. God isn't fair fair. He's just. He's absolutely just. Sorry, I'm going to fight with my microphone over and over again. Sorry about that. <laughs> he's just, but he's gracious. He's merciful. God is love, and love by definition is not It's focused on the other. It's focused on the other person, um, giving everything on their behalf with no expectation of return. Love is not fair, and God is love. So how do we, as God's people, help to build a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that's built on this type of unfair love, unfair sacrifice? Merciful justice. I'll get it eventually. (laughs) Jesus taught quite a bit about the kingdom of God, what it looks like, what to expect. But most interesting of all, he taught extensively about what it looks like to be part of building this type of kingdom. He often taught in the form of parables. Uh, these are stories that are relatable to the listener, but often held several layers of truth so that he could pack in a whole bunch of information, a whole bunch of earth-shattering revelations in just a few lines of dialogue. So this morning, we're going to be looking in-depth at one of these parables, one of my favorite parables, and seeing what Jesus has to say about the nature of grace. Grace. And what it looks like to participate in this grace-filled kingdom building. This making disciples that we're supposed to do as a church. And honestly, how it's very unfair. And how we often, as followers, get it wrong. So this morning, we're going to look at this. Here, We're, uh, we're going to go back to the parable of the prodigal son. You're going to find this in chapter 15 of the book of Luke. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this story, the prodigal son, the lost son, even if you've heard the term prodigal son before. So, it's kind of a little bit of review here. Two brothers living with their father. The younger one is tired of living under the authority of the, of the, of the father. And he demands his share of the inheritance, which, by the way, at that time is basically like saying, I can't wait for you to die, old man. I want my inheritance now. So he demands his inheritance And with that money, he runs off to what scripture calls a distant country. In other words, a place outside of his father's authority. Where he then blows all of his wealth. He parties it up. Wild living is what the NIV says. He goes out in the world and just spends all of his money. Then pretty quickly, he finds himself out of money and alone. He's hit rock bottom. And he's lying amongst the pigs. And he's looking at the pigs and he's going, I wish I could eat like they do. And that's when he has a revela- revelation. Even the servants in his father's house ate regularly. So after some soul searching, he swallows his pride and he decides to head home because he made a mistake not to reclaim his position as his father's son. He kind of sees that ship has sailed. He's already sinned against his father too much. He won't possibly bring him back as his son. But maybe he can go back and work as a servant so here we are starting in verse 20 so he got up and went to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him he ran to his son he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. the son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and against you i am no longer worthy to be called your son But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Now at this point in the story, we have this amazing tale of forgiveness And redemption. It's a beautiful illustration about how the grace of God just permeates through everything. And how it will stop at nothing to redeem us. To bring us back. And how God's desire for us to come home to be at his side is amazing. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel happy. But the story isn't over. See, Jesus taught in these parables as a way to challenge our normal understanding. His purpose in teaching this way was to subvert our expectations. So these stories always lure us in with something familiar, something relatable. Then Jesus turns the tables and messes with our expectations, all in order to give us this deeper understanding of what it is he's trying to say. Now reading through this parable so far, You might be tempted in thinking that the sharp turn, the subversion of expectations, is when the father welcomes his son back. But believe it or not, this actually would not have been a new concept for those listening to Jesus teach in that moment. Now certainly the level of joy... And grace offered by the Father is nothing short of amazing. It's over the top, and it's inspiring, and it's extreme. And to that end, the listeners would be absolutely like encouraged and excited. But mercy and forgiveness are not new concepts for God's people at this point. After all, the the history of Israel is such of a people that are in God's care, that are in God's favor, and that decide to rebel and go against God and do their own thing and then find themselves in trouble only to have God send someone to redeem them back. And so this constant cycle of running away to a distant country and getting pulled back into salvation is part of Israel's history. Israel, the name literally means struggles with God. So this cycle of running away, sinning, and being forgiven extravagantly by the Father it's inspiring, and it's amazing, but it's not new to the listeners. So as Jesus is talking up through this parable, I imagine his listeners at this point would have looked like a sea of bobbleheads. They're Like, yeah, they're encouraged, they're happy, they're inspired, reminded about God's grace through the story. But I don't think they're challenged yet. That is until we get to verse 25 and we start talking about the older brother. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the thing, ha- So he called one of the servants and asked, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never, never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes In wild living, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf, the highest of high delicacies. You kill the fattened calf for him. In other words, the older brother is saying, this this isn't fair. I've worked. I've respected you. I've done everything correctly. But it's this irresponsible, selfish son of yours that's getting the party and the special treatment. That's not fair. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and we had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father is pleading with his son to join the party. Everything I have has always been yours. We get to celebrate that your brother is with us again. So what is Jesus trying to teach here? Many of us could probably see ourselves at some point in our lives identifying with a younger brother, facing forgiveness we didn't deserve, acceptance we didn't earn learning that even after turning our back on our birthright and openly rebelling against God's desire for us, that he still pursued us and forgave us and pulled us out of our midst to return to him. We can feel like the younger brother. However, oftentimes, we are actually in the position of the older brother, struggling to forgive and often being asked to sacrifice on behalf of Of those around us. See don't forget. The younger brother. He already claimed his inheritance. He already got all of his wealth. So this party that the father is throwing. Is coming out of the remainder of the father's wealth. This party is being funded by the older brother's inheritance. So not only is the older brother being asked to come join the party. And to celebrate the return of his brother. But he's also being asked to pay for it. They killed the fattened calf. That's the highest of high delicacies. That's that's catering at $20 a plate, all right? This is a big deal. Because one of the key aspects of Jesus-centered kingdom building is giving priority to those who are currently outside the kingdom. And that's not fair that's hard our focus as the church big C the church God's people has to be outside our walls it's to the world outside as ambassadors of God's kingdom our primary focus has to be our neighbors our coworkers, those in pain those in need After all, if our mission is to make disciples and reflect the light of God into all the dark corners of the world, then we actually have to go to the dark corners of the world and engage with people that are not yet disciples. That's why this church's mission statement, by the way, I was really impressed by it, is create Christ-like communities one neighbor at a time. You're in a mission field. You have younger brothers all around you. And if you're wondering where I'm getting this from, from this parable, this is actually confirmed by the other two parables earlier on in the text, in that same chapter, Uh, in chapter 15, verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country, in some translation it says in the wilds, and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he calls all his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, righteous people who do not need to repent. And then continuing in verse 8, another parable Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? She tears up her house looking for this lost coin. And when she finds it, she throws a party. God will stop at nothing to call us home. Even going as far as to leave the 99 sheep in the open country for the one that wandered away. That's not fair. Of course not. Grace, forgiveness, by its very definition, is not fair. Without Jesus, I'm a messed up dude. I mean, let's be honest. With Jesus, I'm a messed up dude. But with Jesus, I have salvation. With Jesus, I have hope. With Jesus, I'm complete. I have not earned forgiveness. I did not go into my baptism as a perfect person. And I'm still far from perfect today, yet God continues to pursue me even after I mess up, even after I wander away. God continues to forgive me and call me his child. Therefore, I'm compelled to extend that same level of grace to the world around me and follow God's example of pursuing me. With acceptance and with community, regardless of the messes and failures that may or may not be visible, regardless of what it costs me. That is the purpose of the church. We exist to go out and make disciples, grant our belief, not merely to grow in power, never about power, but simply because the unfair grace offered by Jesus is so amazing, so earth-shattering, so life-changing that when we accept that grace, we want to, we need to share it with others. That grace, that, that forgiveness, that new identity that we all share as a forgiven people of God, that is what ties us together. That is what ties all followers of Jesus everywhere together, the fact that no matter what our background, no matter what our messes, our failings, our opinions, our, our ethnicity, whatever, no matter what differences we may have had, we are each one of us forgiven and given a new identity as child of God. God invites all of us to take up that identity, not in response to our accomplishments. Not in response to our not. Not because we know enough. But simply because he loves you so deeply, so fully, that he died to pay for all of our failures. Think about it. Jesus knew every single dark thought you've ever had. Every time you've rebelled. Every time you've thought of rebelling. Every single dark, shadowy thought that you never even admit to yourself, he's aware of. And he still died For you. He still pursues you. God invites us to take up that identity, and that identity is nothing short of amazing. So, as the people of God, excited, excited for the kingdom of God, our purpose shifts in the moment that we first realize what forgiveness really is. We first realize unfair grace. As Jesus followers, we become changed when we shed excuse me, when we shed our old failures and accept the redeemed identity of God. The redeemed identity that God has placed on us as his child. We suddenly have a role to play in the redemption of everything around us. We have a role to play in helping build the kingdom as Jesus described it. Church, as, as our mission. Our mission is to change the world. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. We literally are called to change the world. You know, the original name, Ekklesia. Um, somewhere down the line, we stopped using Ekklesia and started using this other word from German, Kirk, which we now say church. Um, but Ekklesia is a very different word. Ecclesia, literally in Greek means the called out ones. It's a term that refers to the people of God as a movement, as an assembly, as this energy driving force moving. It, imp- it implies movement and change and pursuit. Kirch, Kirk, the German word, is, is a building. It's a place, it's a time. It's sedentary. God's people were never meant to be sedentary. We're a movement set out to pursue people for Jesus. The priority needs to go to those who need saving. Go and make disciples. That is the final command that Jesus gives us before his ascension into heaven. His final words on earth, the one thought that he wanted to leave his people with, go and make disciples. That's the mission, that's the purpose to change the world one neighbor at a time. But that's where the parable ends. We actually never get to see what the older brother does. We don't get to see if he decides to join the celebration. We're left wondering what's going to happen next. Will the older brother follow his father's example and forgive his younger sibling or will he walk away dismayed, dejected And bitter, feeling like he was treated unfairly. It's as if Jesus is leaving this story open on our behalf. We are the older brother. And the father is pleading with us to join the celebration. To welcome the sinner. To celebrate a family more whole today than it was yesterday. Because of people discovering The redemption of Jesus Christ. We can stomp our feet. We can cry and say, This this isn't fair. I've been here forever and I want what I want. But in doing so, we would be giving up our place at the feast. And we would then become the one who is rejecting the Father and turning our back on the family. Or we can join the feast. We can continue to celebrate the fact that our family is more whole today than it was yesterday. Because as the church, our greatest days are always ahead. That's just the way that it works. Always, our greatest days are ahead. Because the family of God is always growing, more people are discovering the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so we can join the feast. We continue to give everything we have our energy, our passion. To be able to grow this family and actively participate in growing a Jesus-centered kingdom. But the parable didn't end. It didn't end on purpose because Jesus wants you to ask, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? The story's open. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, God, you are so good. You pursue us In the midst of our failure, in the midst of our messes, in the midst of our scars, in the midst of our our darkness. You knew every thought I've ever had and yet you came to this earth and you lived my life and you paid my price and you died a death meant for me. You welcomed me home with open arms. You run out to me like the father did. You run out to me and hug me and kiss me and hold me tight and say that I'm your child. And now you ask me to do the same For your lost sons and daughters out there. So God, we want to welcome the sinner. We want the American church to welcome the sinner. We want to be a movement. We want to be an ecclesia. We want to be uh, just a, a steamroll movement powered by the Holy Spirit that goes out into the world, into the darkest corners, one neighbor at a time, and professes that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus offers an identity beyond anything we can ever conceive. Help us to be that community. Help us to be that feast, that celebration, that party as our family continues to grow and as we welcome back our younger brothers and our younger sisters into the folds of our community and our family. God, you are good. Even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic and worldwide uncertainty, we will never forget that you are good. And we know that our greatest days are always ahead, even if it looks scary. Because the feast is still happening. God, you are good, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.